This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. My, what a difference a week makes in the aftermath of the New Hampshire primary. Welcome to the program. If you listened to the program last week, you heard me talk about the post-Iowa um, caucuses and what it meant. And just like I said, you know, a week from now, I said, go back and listen to it. I said, we'll have a different narrative because this thing has so many twists and turns, it's unbelievable. And we'll get into some of that uh, commentary and analysis Later in the program, also, we'll talk about a new study from the Heritage Foundation. They did some analysis on mass shootings, and the findings were not anything surprising, but at the same time, this is uh, uh, good data and information to have to combat the anti-gun forces and how they manipulate statistics and they control the narrative. So we'll talk about that, some other things as well, but here's where I want to start. I want to do some post commentary on the Super Bowl. It's been about a week, and congratulations to the Denver Broncos. But I want to talk about Cam Newton and his post game demeanor and behavior, and I also have some comments on the, uh, the Super Bowl halftime show, which always sparks some some sort of um, controversy. I think that's too strong a word. What's some comments and takes? I think that's why that's what they want out of it. It's all part of that whole Super Bowl experience. But let me start with Cam Newton. Cam, New- Cam Newton lost the biggest game of his career thus far, the Super Bowl. You know, he won the national championship, and he gets into the NFL, and he is an elite quarterback. There's no doubt about that. I'm not going to take any of that away from him. I'm not a big Cam Newton fan, but I don't hate the guy either. Not a hater. But I sit up there, and I sat up there this season anyway, as they went 15-1, and one, and they were in your face as they were winning football games. And, you know, I, I like that. I like swagger. But gosh darn it, the, the, when, when, when it doesn't happen, when the biggest game of the year that you needed to win doesn't happen, boy, are people going to come down on you. So Cam Newton has no problem getting in people's faces and showboating on the field when he runs for a first down. You know his little routine, his his little first down 
uh, symbol or, or, or dance. And then the, the dab, you've all heard about the dab. You know, he has no problem showing people up on the field. And it's not well received on the field. Opponents don't like that in professional sports. But Cam does it his way. Good for him. I do things my way. That's not what this is about. But Cam Newton, in the postgame conference, uh, a news conference, press conference, embarrassed himself. Cam Newton showed up in a hoodie with the hood up, sat down in the chair, sulking like he was some seven-year-old who lost in peewee football. Pouting. He, he literally was pouting. One-word answers. Didn't have much to say, and then eventually just got up and walked out in the middle of it. Now, here's the thing. There's nothing more difficult in that situation, and I don't know why the leagues do this. They end up talking to the, uh, the, the losing team, the losing coach. It's all part of it. And, you know, years ago, 10 years ago, they only talked to the winners. Let the losers alone. Let them sulk in the locker room and uh, you know, cry in their milk. I don't know why they, have, they, they, they find a need to do this. However, they do it. And there's a way to conduct yourself. You have to have class. You have to have, you know, give your opponent credit. You have to have grace. And you have to, you know, in defeat, you still have to display some sort of, I'll say it again, class. All right, Russell Wilson did it last year when he lost the Super Bowl. He threw an interception at the end of the game that cost them back-to-back Super Bowls. He didn't show up at the post-game press conference in a hoodie with his hood up, sulking, pouting like some teenager who doesn't get to use the car uh, on a Friday or Saturday night. You have to stand up there and take it. You know what this saying? They say adversity doesn't build character. It reveals it. And I think that epitomizes Cam Newton's demeanor post-Super Bowl. We saw who Cam Newton really is. While things are good and he's on top and he's winning, Oh, he's full of, in the post-game press conference. Did you see the post-game news conference? Go back and YouTube it. After they won the NFC Championship game, did you see how he was dressed there? Now, all of a sudden, things didn't work out for him, and he wants to sulk. He had a chance to demonstrate to America, look, I'm a grown man. This is very difficult. He had a chance to send a message to young people. He's a role model. He knows that. Here's how you handle yourself. In adversity, not just because you lost a football game. Here's how you handle adversity, young people. And put it on display, which is why I said it doesn't build character. Adversity does not build character, it reveals it. So when times are good, Cam's, you know, he's the good guy and he's full of talk and all happy and smiling. And and, and then when they lose, he acts like a punk. So this isn't the end for him. He'll get another chance to... He's going to have to rebuild his his brand now. It was a horrible display. There was a, a chance for him. Now he's going to have to spend the offseason rebuilding his reputation. And then he gets up and he 
doubles down on it a couple days later and says, no, I'm not going to conform to anything, and, and I'm a sore loser, and, and I was mad because I lost. He's not the only person that ever, quarterback that ever lost a Super Bowl. There have been 50 Super Bowl losing quarterbacks. He's just one of them. How does he think Jim Kelly feels? Jim Kelly lost four Super Bowls. How does he think any of the other losing quarterbacks feel after that? You know, I I understand what he's getting. It's not the way to conduct yourself when you're a public figure. And he is a public figure. It's a quarterback in the NFL. The most elite, important position there is. And then he's sulking because, and you could hear in in the post-game news conference, you could hear on the other side or somewhere close by, you could hear the Denver Broncos celebrating. I mean, you could hear it. And he said he was bothered by that, that they were celebrating while he had to sit there and, and talk about what it felt like to lose. You know what? He could have used that as motivation. Cam Newton could have said, you hear that going on in that behind that other wall? That's where I want to be next year. And I'm going to go back this offseason and work harder than I ever have in my life because next year I don't want to be on this side talking to you about what it feels like to have lost the Super Bowl I want to be in that other locker room. And then he could have joined his teammates and said the same thing. Guys, gather around. Because he's the leader of that team. I just heard the Denver Broncos. I heard what it's like to win a Super Bowl. That's where we want to be next year. And all of you this offseason are going to have to dig down inside and ask yourselves, how hard am I willing to work? Harder than last year because as hard as we worked last year, it only got us this far and we lost. How hard do you want to commit yourself this offseason so that we're in the locker room celebrating a Super Bowl win? That's leadership. People would have looked at that. America would have looked at it. And his teammates would have looked at it and said, I want to follow this guy. And I'll walk through fire to follow this guy. I wouldn't walk. (laughs) I wouldn't walk down the block following cam newton the blaze radio network on demand david clark the people's sheriff find more on demand at theblaze.com slash radio when our water heater broke down last month it was a nightmare it took five hours for the plumber to show up and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out then it cost another eighteen hundred dollars to put in the new water heater By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washer and dryer coverage. Just call Call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. 
listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Okay, let's get to the halftime show, specifically surrounding Beyonce's performance. And, you know, during Super Bowl week, it was brought out that she was going to do this new song that she had and this new video or routine, and there were tinges tinges of uh, anti-police sentiment in it and police bashing and and so I took a look during Super Bowl week. I said, I'm going to see what this is all about. And I watched the video. And personally, I saw the lyrics. And I thought, this isn't that big a deal. Was it necessary? No. Was it the wrong time to debut that Super Bowl halftime, which is more mainstream America? Uh, it isn't even like a music awards show. We can get a little edgy if you want. Shame on Roger Goodell and the NFL for not being a little more hands-on in terms of uh, not just the uh, who they were going to have on as the performers. I know that they have to okay that, but uh, they should, probably should have got a little more involved. You know, they contract out for the halftime show. The NFL doesn't put it together. They, they, they go with some concert promoter and they put the show together. But it's you don't want the halftime show to overshadow the game. And I'm talking about in the post-game commentary. All right, we all know that the commercials are a big deal when it comes to the Super Bowl. We also know that the halftime show is a big deal. And then there's the game. All right, and they want the game to be the thing, but they want it to be something more than just a Sunday afternoon football game. So they make this big deal about it, and that's fine. So you bring in Beyonce, And she dresses in these uniforms, her and her, whatever they call her, dancers uh, that were uh, uh, similar to Black Panther uniforms. And you have to ask yourself, why would she want to raise such a divisive symbol of of, uh, racial militancy, racial hate, and and, and separation to a Super Bowl halftime show? And the Super Bowl is mainly mainstream, mainstream audience, and you want the game to be the thing. Right, that's what you want people talking about. They're going to comment on halftime show after every Super Bowl, at least in the last 10 years. That's going to happen. But remember with Janet Jackson and the uh, wardrobe malfunction, that overshadowed the game. And so you, they want to try to avoid that. So Beyonce comes on, she does her thing, and then I start getting some calls from uh, Fox News, several shows. They wanted my comments on this uh, Beyonce halftime show and was it anti-police and so on and so forth? And my initial reaction, I shrugged my shoulders and I said, I really think this is much to do about nothing. Beyonce is not that big a deal. All right? She's not to me. Now, you know I'm a country music fan. I know Beyonce is. I don't buy her music. I don't listen to her music. Whenever her name comes up in something, I don't go, oh, what, what is she saying? I got to hear about this. She, she just She doesn't move me. Let's put it that way. Unlike what Quentin Tarantino did, okay, because like her, he's a he's in the entertainment business. Quentin Tarantino went to New York City on the weekend for a Black Lies L I E S Matter uh, demonstration. You know when when the NYPD was burying one of their officers who'd been killed in the line of duty. Quentin Tarantino shows up to get his his uh, racial sensitivity card stamped. And he stands up there and calls the police murderers. He calls the police racist. That's not what uh, Beyonce did here. So my point is, there's enough 
going on right now in the world and in the United States that that deserve comment that I am going to engage in and I am going to comment on uh, sometimes strongly surrounding crime, surrounding race, surrounding the police. And I saw this and I said, this isn't one that I really have any emotional feeling about. All right. But I decided, well, okay, I picked one show and, and said, yeah, I'll, I'll comment on this. But I just didn't. I'm like, really? So here's how this went. This is with Deidre Bolton on uh, Fox Business Channel. What was your thought on the matter? Well, I try not to uh, overreact to these things. I don't want to give this thing any more play than it's already getting. Uh, look, musicians have long used their their music, their trade to make political statements uh, in their music. We may not like it, but uh, I don't want to make a, a huge deal about it. Them coming out, Beyonce in those uh, Black Panther type uniforms, would that be acceptable if a band, a white band came out in hoods and uh, white sheets in the same sort of fashion, we would be appalled and outraged. The Black Panthers are a subversive, a subversive hate group in America. America, I think she could have done a, a, a better job, but I think Bruno Mars was a better uh, halftime act anyway. I could have watched him for the entire act. So that's how it went down. That's what I said. That you heard the question, how I answered it. And pretty, pretty by my standards anyway. Uh, nonchalant, no, no big deal. I didn't try to make it a big deal. And, of course, people took what I said, and this happens a lot, and I, I'm used to this. They contorted what I said, and you know, about the, 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 the white hoods and the sheets, and they said that I compared her routine to that. And Well, fine. I, but it, it's, you know, it's, come on, America. All right, this is a halftime show of the Super Bowl. It's Beyonce. Who cares? Let's stick to what's really important here. Okay, and save some of that nonsense uh, we get all worked up about. We waste energy, we waste time on people that don't matter. She won't be making any public policy decisions, at least anytime soon. And again, really the big thing there is about let's not overreact to, uh, to what that thing was about. Okay, enough Super Bowl stuff. Let me quickly talk about this incident. I didn't get a chance to talk about it last week. I said I would. This uh, terrorist, thwarted terrorist uh, uh, situation in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, my hometown. The FBI, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, local law enforcement, come across this guy. And uh, he says he wants to plan some big terrorist attack at a Masonic uh, temple, or a Masonic lodge in, in the city of Milwaukee. And he wanted to kill at least 30 people. He wanted to go out and blaze the glory. So he's talking all this stuff. They're recording it. They get a couple of informants. They record him. They get so part in the investigation where they feel this guy is just the um, ability, you know, the means, I should say, away from being able to pull this off. So they set him up to buy some weapons. He said he needed a machine gun and silencer, a couple of machine guns and silencer, and he was ready to move on this. So they, the agents go out. And they um, actually gave him a machine gun and silence. They actually put this stuff in his hand. He takes it to the trunk, trunk of his car and puts it in, and then they jump out and they take the guy down. I've talked about this before. This is not an effective way to deal with homegrown radicalization 
in a homegrown terrorist situation. So they get this guy. All they have him for is possession of a machine gun. They don't have him down for any planning a terrorist attack because there's no statute to cover that. So possession of a machine gun, it's a it's a 20-year felony. Okay, he may get convicted of something. I don't know. He, he may not. But even if he does, we clutter our jails and prisons with these radicalized individuals. But you see, when I say the FBI is a downstream organization, they act, actually go in and, and, and have evidence that this guy... Because that's, you know, that's when, when you are an investigative agency, that's what you do. You're thinking, I need proof beyond a reasonable doubt for a, a courtroom. Okay, it was great work, but why do you have to actually give the guy bomb-making materials and, and submachine guns or machine guns before they actually arrest him? This is a wrong-headed way. It's another example of a wrong-headed way, and I'll keep you posted as to what happens as this investigation moves forward. This is the wrong way. We don't have a true intelligence agency domestically in the United States. We need one, and we need a strategy to deal with the radicalization. David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Pure Opelka with Mike Opelka. And when he said that night of of the horrible explosion and crash that those seven souls had slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. It just gut-punched all of us. Powerful stuff. It reminds you of just what Reagan had as an orator. Pure Opelka. Saturdays, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Okay, let's move into this analysis that I talked about earlier regarding gun-free zones, the Heritage Foundation. They conducted some analysis and uh, found that, in essence, mass shooters prefer gun-free zones. They seek them out uh, purposely. We know we've heard that before. We haven't seen any real analysis of that, and that's what the anti-gunners the anti-Second Amendment people keep saying that, uh, well, there's no data to suggest that. Well, we have some now. And that's what's important about this is, is you want to, when you push these narratives, it's always good. In an intellectual-based uh, conversation to have some data to support what you're talking about. So this is from the Daily Signal. And... I'll read it. It's pretty quick here. An analysis of mass shootings in the United States since the year 2002 shows that gun-wielding mass killers are more likely to strike where the Second Amendment right to bear arms has been supplanted by gun-free zone ordinances, be they federal, local, or specified by the owner of the property. The Stanford University Library's data set of mass shootings was analyzed for mass shootings over the last 14 years. Uh, Let me interject something here. That's a pretty good sample size. All right, and that's always important in analysis. The first thing I look for, what sample size did they use? Did they take five of them? What's the left likes to do? They'll take two or three and try to form some uh, empirical-based um, assumption or, or conclusion, I should say. When I look and I say the sample size isn't big enough. So we're looking at 14 years. Back to the story. The definition of a mass shooting for the Stanford database is three or more shooting victims killed 
or injured, not including the shooter. Shootings that are gang or drug related are not included. And that's important because somehow somebody came up with some arbitrary number that it's four or more shootings is considered a mass shooting. Well, not necessarily. All right, because if there's a gang war going on and a shootout occurs in a neighborhood and two gang members die in in one uh, situation and two on the other side, it's not a mass shooting. It's a gang fight. But the left has to include these to pump up the numbers. They want to say, you know, that since uh, 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 a certain date, you know, there have been 153 or whatever mass shootings. When they're having. But anyway, it goes on to say the data set includes 153 incidents going back to the beginning of 2002. Research done at the Heritage Foundation found that 54 of the 53 incidents, or 35%, involved a shooter targeting people at random who were not relatives or adversaries of the intended murderer. Or attempted murderer, I should say. Of the 54 incidents that fit this criteria, the shooter chose locations where guns were banned 37 times or 69%. Let me say that again. Of the 54 incidents that fit this criteria, the shooter chose a location where guns were banned 37 times, 69%. Alternatively, the shooting occurred where guns where guns were legally allowed only occurred 17 times or 31%. Okay, does that make sense? So we're talking 69% of the time guns were banned and only 31% of the times were guns okay to be on the prem- on the premise. Of the 17 shootings that occurred where citizens could legally carry firearms, 29% were ended when the gunman was stopped or slowed by a gun permit holder's intervention. So in other words, it concludes, if you have a choice to be in a gun-free zone or legal to carry setting, you are less likely to be the victim of a mass shooting where it is legal to carry guns. All else being equal, if a killer can strike where he is less likely to face lethal law-abiding resistance from ordinary citizens, he will. We kind of knew that, all right? But we don't have a lot of data supported. But here's a start here. Uh, I think this is pretty good stuff. It's kind of stuff that the, the data, anyway, the empirical analysis and research, uh, I find fascinating. Let's get into New Hampshire. I sat up here last week, go back to my podcast last week, and said a week after Iowa, we will be talking, there'll be a different narrative. As I said earlier, what a difference a week makes. And the reason I said that, not because I'm into the prediction business or that I'm a, I'm, I'm a uh, polished prognosticator, but we have so far to go in this process. Now we're only two states completed. What do I think overall bottom line in terms of what New Hampshire means? To me, it just means on to South Carolina, in a nutshell. But I have some comments about the, the, the New Hampshire primary. First of all, Donald Trump rebounded. I told you Trump supporters, remember, I don't have a dog in this fight. Got good and bad to say about all these guys. But I told the Trump supporters, come in off the ledge. Okay, it's Iowa. It's one. 
Trump ended up with seven delegates, Cruz with eight, Rubio with seven. You need 1,267 delegates to secure the nomination. I think there are 2,275 total delegates. You need 1,267 to secure the nomination. You know what the delegate count is after New Hampshire? Trump has 17 total. Cruz has 10. I think uh, Rubio has like nine. Okay, you got to get to 1267. So I would suggest, again, after South Carolina, we may have a different narrative. So cool your jets. The Trump people are obviously happy. He needed a win. And I don't mean a must win. I say he needed a win because he's never won an election. Never. Cruz has won elections. Bush has won elections. Rubio has won elections. Kasich has won elections. Christie has won elections. Of course, Christie and Carly dropped out, as you know. But it's important to get that first one under your belt to prove to people that you can win an election and that you actually have people who are willing to go out and vote for you and not just fans. And that was one of the things that the the political pundits, the media elite, were saying about Donald Trump after Iowa. Well, you know, he has he doesn't really have voters. He has fans. Well, he disproved that now, that notion, because he won by New Hampshire by a two-to-one margin. Remember what we were saying about Marco Rubio coming out of Iowa? Oh, he's got the wind at his back. When I say we, I'm talking about that was all the talk with the pundits, not necessarily you and I. Oh, he's got the wind at his back. He's got momentum going into New Hampshire. He finished a very disappointing fifth place. So much for momentum. Kasich finished number two. I, I don't understand that, but he did. Jeb Bush spent $36 million in advertising in New Hampshire to finish a distant fourth. He's just running through cash right now. He's running through his super PAC cash, and he wants to bleed this account before he gets out. This guy's dragging around his 90-year-old mother on the campaign trail. They had a picture of her. Oh, it looked great. She was walking through a snowstorm with her walker on a sidewalk in New Hampshire. I thought to myself, Jeb, what the hell is wrong with you? Who would put their 90-year-old mother in a walker out on a slippery sidewalk in a massive snowstorm for a photo op? You know, there's nothing... That, that 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 emanates from Jeb Bush that says strength. He's got his 90-year-old mother in tow, stomping for him. You know, we're used to seeing candidates bring their wives and kids. We've seen it. We, we've seen Marco at, at the stuff with his kids, and that's all natural. You know, people do that. Your 90-year-old mother dragging her through the streets in New Hampshire in a snowstorm? As a cheerleader, we'll have more to say this in the next segment. David Clark. The People's Sheriff. On the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. No one does this easily. Just like they don't get into it easily. You get out of it because you run out of money. And the reason you run out of money is because you finally realize that your worst fears, that your worst fears have been realized not only by you, but by everybody else first. 
Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. A few final comments on the New Hampshire primary, post New Hampshire primary. You know, remember, we have a long way to go. Um, Carly dropped out. I think that was the right thing to do. Chrissy dropped out. That was a foregone conclusion. He probably should have dropped out earlier. He was never going to get the nomination, the GOP nomination uh, for president of the United States. And he spent his last days in New Hampshire trying to take out. He reminded me of a of a mob enforcer trying to take out Marco Rubio uh, on his way out the door. I thought that was a bad taste. Bow out gracefully, for heaven's sakes. I do like Carly. Did she didn't she didn't exit the stage like that? So two more down. Uh, Carly supporters and Christie supporters will have to make. They'll have a they have a decision to make. I would advise them. I don't tell you what to do with your vote and your support. I would advise you to just uh, observe for now and wait. Don't do like Rick Santorum. He got out and immediately endorsed Marco Rubio in New Hampshire and and, and Rubio um, did not have a good showing. So you don't want that attached to your name uh, that you were <laughs> the kiss of death uh, for that candidate. So we'll keep an eye on that. The South brings different dynamics, obviously. Let me speak briefly on the the Democrat nomination uh, that's going on right now, coming out of New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders thumped Mrs. Bill Clinton. Uh, Thumped her. That cannot happen. If you're the the Mrs. Bill Clinton campaign, that cannot happen. You can't get beat 60 to 39. You can lose a tight one. Okay, 52-48, 51-49. No big deal. 60 to 39 to this socialist? I mean, my gosh, they got to be going crazy over at the Clinton campaign with what's happening. They're seeing 2008 all over again, where she did poorly in the first couple of states, this neophyte named Barack Obama. And he built up such momentum out of those early states that he just steamrolled her. And they got to be saying, here we go again. They got to be going crazy over there. And then the day after New Hampshire primary, where does Bernie Sanders go? To Harlem, to meet with Al Sharpton. Now look, I've talked about it on this program. Both of these people face a black vote deficiency dilemma. Sanders more so than Mrs. Bill Clinton. For Sanders to go to Harlem was was <laughs> such an oxymoron. You heard me talk about Sanders. He's the senator from Vermont. They have a black population of about 6,000 people. And you've heard me say, what is a black person in Vermont called? The answer is a rare sighting. Even when he's in his home state, the likelihood that Sanders is going to bl- uh, run, run into a black person in his home state is slim to none. He doesn't share black experiences. He's not emotionally connected to black people coming from the state of, of, of Vermont. It's not a knock on the state of Vermont. You heard me say the only time Sanders 
sees black people is when he goes to Washington, D.C. to do his Senate business. You know, the population in Washington, D.C. is predominantly black. Not making light of that. It's true. So he feels now a need, politically, I, I can see why he did it, to get into bed with Al Sharpton, that son of Satan, that slithering snake. I'm insulted because Sanders is is basically saying that Al Sharpton is the leader of black America. He's not. That's an insult. Sanders needs to meet with a number of black leaders. A number of them. Not just Al Sharpton. Bernie Sanders in Harlem, it, it looked, it was a joke. When Bernie Sanders was walking through the, the, the streets of Harlem, I can imagine the the thoughts going through black people's mind. Oh, Lord, look, that old white man over there must have lost his way. He wandered down here into Harlem. He didn't even look natural sitting there next to Al Sharpton. I don't know if they were eating breakfast or lunch or whatever it was. And it's all staged. That's what that's what happens in presidential politics. But I mean, my gosh, the pandering is is it's not only so phony, but it's so damn insulting that they you know Bernie Sanders thinks one black guy, a guy from the gutter, speaks for Black America, and Al Sharpton is playing these two like a fiddle. He that meeting with Sanders was really for Al Sharpton. It was a shot across the bow to the Clinton campaign saying, what are you willing to give me for my support? We know the Congressional Black Caucus already endorsed Mrs. Bill Clinton. So Al Sharpton, what are you willing to give me? This guy's a huckster. He's looking for something for his own gain out of this in exchange for his endorsement and, and working to get out the black vote uh, come November. That's what this is about for him. Hey, I got a chance to get something out of this. I mean, the whole thing is, is so ridiculous. So now Mrs. Bill Clinton is going to have to one-up him, you know, out-black him. Was she going to appear with some rapper? I mean, she's already got Eric Holder stumping for her in South Carolina. He's doing some ads for her. That corrupt, racist former attorney general. This thing is is about to get real good on the Democrat side. It really is. Here's what we're going to close with. Some Senate news, some more Senate news, United States Senate. The GOP-controlled Senate is about to approve more Obama judges. We're in the final months, less than a year of the Obama administration, and yet they continue to leave the pipeline open for judicial nominees for Barack Obama. It says here, this is from the Daily Signal, on Monday the Senate will consider Rebecca Ebinger for a lifetime judicial appointment as a district judge in Iowa. In December, the Iowa senator, they're talking about uh, Chuck Grassley, brokered a deal between Republicans and Democrats to advance five of Obama's nominees to the Senate floor for a vote before President's Day next Monday. 
So far in 2016, three of those nominees have won Senate confirmation, including the one that I did a segment on here. Wilhelmina Wright, a controversial judge, judge who approved, who accused President Ronald Reagan of bigotry and racism. You know, I, I, I read this stuff. If it goes on to say here, before I say that, some organizations like Heritage Action have advocating freezing all of the president's judicial nominees in protest of what conservatives consider executive overreach. You know, if you think about this, this is what leads to the rise of Donald Trump, this kind of stuff. They're getting nothing but slapped around by the president. They're going, what do you want? You want some more? Slap us again, please. We're enjoying this. The fact is, when you look at the number, and it points it out in this article, during the same time period when George Bush was president, this last year, the last year of his presidency, here's the count. When Bush was in the White House, the Senate confirmed 297 court nominees between 2000 and 2008. In Bush's final year in office, when Democrats held a majority, the Senate confirmed four court nominees before June and 24 court nominees before September. So far in the seven-year reign of the Obama administration, the Senate has confirmed 322 nominees. 14 of those came during the 114th Congress while Republicans control the Senate. So you see what's going on here? I mean, my gosh. Why don't we give Republicans control of the United States Senate? Somebody remind me again. That's all we have time for today. Follow me during the week on Twitter at Sheriff Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E, and at thepeoplesheriff.com. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network.